Well, good morning again. So pleased to see you here this morning. I want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. If you take your Bibles and turn with us this morning to Exodus chapter number 2. Over the last several years, we have instituted doing things a little bit differently. Instead of giving you a little token gift on Mother's Day, we contribute to a worthy cause in your honor this year in honor of our mothers and the ladies in our church. We make contributions to Life Choice Crisis Pregnancy Center in Conway and the orphanage in Guatemala. I know they'll appreciate that and that it will do a lot of good in the coming days. Exodus chapter number two. I want to begin by giving you the top 10 mom-isms, things that you've heard perhaps in your life. Number one, why? Because I said so. Number two, I'm going to give you until the count of three. I don't know what the magic three is, but I never got past three. It's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt. I don't know is not an answer. I would have never talked to my mother like that. My mother had a variation on that. She says, I'm going to slap you into the middle of next week. She also said, if we put your brain in a jaybird, it'd fly backwards. She said, I'm not running a taxi service. Variation of that may be, I'm not a short order cook. If everyone else jumped off a cliff, would you? Someday your face is going to freeze like that. This is going to hurt me more than, more than hurt me more than hurt you. I doubt that, but Carl, Linda, Fido, whatever your name is. There are, of course, those statements you said that you would never say, right? If you get hurt, don't come crying to me. You ever said that? Close the door. Were you raised in a barn? I'm not chasing you. You have to stop sometime, and when I catch you, you're going to be sorry. And just part, what part of no do you not understand? Stop that. You're going to put somebody's eye out. Stop crying or I will give you something to cry about. Finish what's on your plate. There are starving children in the world. I always th- you know, offered to send it to them, but mother didn't think that was a good answer. I'm keenly aware this morning that <clears throat> Mother's Day, for some of the ladies in our congregation, might not always be sweet. In the minds of many people, there's no one in the world like their mother. For most, mom is a very special person, but for others, memories of mother are not always sweet. And for other reasons, sometimes Mother's Day is attached to something traumatic that has happened in your life. 
But my purpose today is not to just speak to mothers, but to fathers as well. Today we're going to be looking at Jochebed and Amram, the parents of Moses, because I believe we can find some very pertinent principles that they used in rearing Moses in a difficult time and in a pagan culture. In this age of selfishness and materialism, we need to look at the characteristics of parents that we would do well to emulate. So in today's message, we're going to look at Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses, and see the characteristics of a godly parent. Exodus chapter 2, verse number 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to see what would be done to him. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And then she opened it, and she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, What, shall I go and call a nurse from among the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. And so the maiden went and called the child's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the, children, the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called him Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. A severe famine had caused Jacob and his sons and their families to move to Egypt, where Joseph by this time was prime minister, second only in power to Pharaoh himself. From a small band of 70 members, that number had grown to perhaps in excess of 2 million. And when a new Pharaoh came to the throne, he began to see the children of Israel as a threat. So Pharaoh devised a plan. First, he decided to enslave the Israelites. But the Bible says that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And Pharaoh's response was that he was not at all pleased. He was frustrated at this outcome. So he put another policy in effect. He called the Egyptian midwives to see that all the male children born to the Israelites, died. But the, the midwives made excuse for why the Israelite babies survived. And finally, in desperation, the Pharaoh commanded that all the male babies born to the Israelites should be cast into the Nile River. The Nile River was a habitation of the Egyptian god, Sobek, the crocodile god. 
Thus the solution to Pharaoh's problem was also to become an offering to Sobek, the crocodile god of Egypt. Now I want you to notice four facts about Pharaoh's, about Moses' parents. First of all, the decision they faced, the parents of Moses chose life. Turn, if you would, into the New Testament now, the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 7 and verse number 17. Moses was born into a culture of death. According to Acts 7, 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, that children grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in the, his father's house for three months. We need to face the facts this morning that we also live in a culture of death. We live in a world where the most dangerous place for some unborn children is the place that they should be the safest, and that is their mother's womb. We live in a world where not every pregnant woman wants to be a mother. We live in a culture that even allows a woman to take away the life of her child. I just give you a couple of statistics about this abortion problem in our day and age. On average, women who choose abortion list at least three reasons. Number one, three quarters of them say that having a baby would interfere with their work, their school, or other responsibilities. About three quarters of them said that they couldn't afford a child, and about one half of them said they did not want to be a single parent or, ha or that they are having problems with their husband or their partner. Since the inception of Ray, Roe v. Wade in 1973, there have been 61,280,000 abortions in the U.S., and that was from yesterday, and that clock is still ticking. It goes up. There have been <clears throat> 338,572 abortions performed <clears throat> this year in the United States. That's 2018. There is, of course, much more that could be said about abortion. The fact is <clears throat> that it is too easy in our world to do away with an unwanted child. We live in a culture of death, and that can't be denied. Secondly, the choice that they made, the parents of Moses reacted in faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter number 11, verse number 23. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. The faith of the parents of Moses can be seen in the fact that they were not afraid of the king's command. I think we need to note that their motivation here was not fear. It was faith. The parents of Moses hid him as long as possible. For three months they hid their child. Can you imagine trying to hide a baby for three months? 
I remember when we brought our baby home from the hospital. For the first six weeks, she had the colic. She cried, she cried, she cried, and she cried some more. I don't think I could have hidden her for three minutes, much less three months. And if there had been a Nile River, Don't quote that to Nikki for me, please. It says, he, Moses, was a goodly child. That means he was a healthy child. He was a healthy child, but he was born under a sentence of death. I want you to note that acting in faith, they trusted God's heart even when they could not understand his plan. Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, had a deep and abiding faith in God. This verse says that they hid their child because they were not afraid of the king's command. It would be, you would expect it to say just the opposite perhaps, that they hid the child because they were afraid. But the truth was, if you kill your baby, you will live. If you don't kill your baby, you risk your own life. But they said, we will not give in. The point is that it is faith that produced the courage to defy the king. The parents of Moses prayed and they planned and then they depended, trusted on God to help them. May I suggest to you that Moses do, grew to be a great man of faith because his father and his mother were people of faith. Charles Swindoll says, to walk by faith does not mean that we stop thinking. To trust God does not imply becoming slovenly or lazy or apathetic. What a distortion of biblical faith. You and I need to trust God for our finances, but that is not a license to spend foolishly. You and I ought to trust God for safety in our car, but we are, not wise. we are not wise if we pass in a blind curve. We trust God for our health, but that doesn't mean that we can chain smoke, stay up half the night, and subsist on potato chips and Twinkies without consequences. Faith and careful planning go hand in hand, and they always have. I want you to also note that acting in faith does not mean acting foolishly. Finally, Jacob had decided that Pharaoh has commanded her to place her child in the river Nile. All right, she would do so, but she would do so in her own way. She fastened a little basket out of interwoven reeds, which were believed to be a protection against crocodiles. And then she waterproofed it with tar and resin and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Perhaps it seems odd that they would hide their baby in the very river which the babies were being drowned. Did they know of the bathing habits of the princess? Did they receive some kind of message from God? Or was it just a plan of desperation? I don't know, and the text doesn't tell us. Perhaps you're like myself. I, as I envision Jacobin taking, making her way down to the river, I see her 
thrusting the little basket out into the current and the basket bobbing down the river until it comes to rest in a <clears throat> reed somewhere where it is found. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Verse 3 says she laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. In other words, she carefully positioned the basket precisely where she wanted it. She put the basket in the place that it was most likely that the princess would come to bathe. And then she sent Miriam, Moses' older sister, to watch over the basket. And she had no doubt instructed Miriam carefully on what she was to say and do. Verse number five, we're told, and then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrews women? And she may, that she may nurse the child for you. And Pharaoh's daughter said, go. And so the maiden went and called the child's mother. So soon after Moses is placed there, the Pharaoh's daughter comes along with some of her attendants at the very place that the baby Moses was placed. And she spotted the basket among the reeds and she sent a servant to retrieve it. Miriam was nearby to watch over the baby and when he, dis he was discovered by the Pharaoh's daughter, she rushed to her side to make the suggestion that a Hebrew woman could nurse this baby for her. Was the princess surprised when a young slave girl approached her to ask her if she would like to have a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for her? Whatever was in her mind, Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses. The name means drawn out, referring to the fact that Moses was drawn out of the Nile River. This name was also providential in the fact that Moses, who was drawn out, was drawn out in that he might one day draw out the children of Israel from slavery. There is great irony in the fact that Miriam brought Jochebed, Moses' own mother, so his own mother took him back, took the little boy to nurse and to rear for several years. And she did this all with the protection of Pharaoh's daughter, the same king who had ordered Moses' death. And even more ironic, not only was the baby given back to his mother, but now she is paid by the Pharaoh to nurse her own child. Third, I want you to see the heritage they passed on. The parents of Moses taught the truth when they had the opportunity. What would you do if you knew that everything your child might know about God, they would learn from you? What if this was compounded by the knowledge that in all likelihood you will not have very much time in which to accomplish this? What do you do? What would you tell your child? 
Jochebed not only knew about Jehovah's interaction with his people, she also believed the promises that he had made to his people. The words of Deuteronomy 6, 7 then take on special meaning. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. If that were so, you would look for the opportunities to share your faith with your children and your grandchildren, to tell them about your faith. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing anyway? How do you pass on your faith to your children? Well, the words of Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 give us instruction. It says, train up a child in the way they should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But what do those words mean? Some people take it as a promise. They say, well, but I know people who are good, godly people, and, and at a certain age, their children walked away from God and have never come back. So obviously that can't be true. But it's not a promise. It's a principle. It's a principle. The first word in the verse is train, and it comes from a Hebrew word used to describe the actions of a midwife. After she had helped to deliver a child, she would dip her finger into crushed dates and she would reach into the mouth of the child and, re and place that dates on the gums of their mouth. That flavor sensation of the dates would create in the infant a desire to nurse. So the term train up means to create a thirst. What if Jochebed hadn't taken the advantage of the opportunities she had? What would have happened if she decided that, like many people in our age, well, I'll just wait until Moses grows up and then he can make his own choice? He can decide for himself. What if Jochebed had decided that Moses was too young to learn about the things of God. Jochebed reminds us that if we do not teach our children and grandchildren biblical values, the world will teach them theirs. In that brief time that Jochebed had with Moses, she created in him a desire for the things of God that he never got over. Nobody ever takes the place of a preschool mother's influence upon their child. Nobody will ever be greater in their life than you as their mother. And perhaps no one is even as much as you as their grandparents. Which leads us to the idea that we need to lead them to have a thirst to use their God-given gifts and abilities to accomplish God's purpose for their lives. We can assume that Amram shared the same faith and ideals and hopes as did his wife. Unfortunately, many women find their greatest opponent 
to the proper raising of children is the father of their children. Number four, the truth they found, the parents of Moses learned that God can be trusted. Back to Hebrews chapter 11, picking up in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he came of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's an interesting sidelight story found in a passage found in First Chronicles relating to the genealogy of a man named Mered, who is said to have married a woman named Bethira in First Chronicles 4.18. It says, Bethira, daughter of Pharaoh, perhaps indicating that the princess who adopted Moses actually became a child of God herself and that she left Egypt in the exodus with the children of God. Children need more than the material things of life. Children need to have the inspiration and guidance of things spiritual. The greatest responsibility you have as a Christian parent or grandparent is to see that those children are raised to trust in Jesus. If you succeed in doing so, you will be a success, even if you cannot give them all the material toys of this world. Parents, grandparents, children are watching you. The decisions you make, the choices you make, the sacrifices you make, the way you face challenges, the way you treat people, the way you talk, and the way you walk. Their character is forged on the example of you and your spouse. Don't fail them. If you have not already received Jesus Christ into your own heart, I would invite you to do so today so that he might dwell in your home and your house and that you might bless your children and your grandchildren through you. There are many things that you may not be able to provide for your children, but with God's help, you can give them Christian parents and grandparents. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to thank you today for the women that you've placed in our lives. Thank you for the mothers that you gave us in this life, those who gave us life. Some did for us things that cost them something in the process. They gave of themselves in order that we might have. Father, I pray that we would take our responsibility as Christian parents and grandparents, as members of this congregation, to realize that there are young eyes watching us, seeing what we do, seeing how we live our lives, not just the words we say, but what we do, and whether what we say matches what we do. Father, help us to live in such a way 
that we do not fail them, that we give uh, the next generation a biblical value system. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning that doesn't know you in a personal and intimate way. I pray that they might realize that they can close that circle this morning. They may have come here without a knowledge that they are saved, but they can leave here with the knowledge that they are saved by simply turning to you, realizing that they are sinners, repenting of their sin, and asking Jesus to save them. Father, we ask that you'd help us as we try to carry out the responsibilities that you've given us. We realize that in many ways, our society is just as pagan as the one in which Moses lived. The one in which Jacobin and Amram had the responsibility to bring up Moses and give him proper values in his life. Help us to realize that and to live in light of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.